All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Beauty and the Beast Physical Therapy and Strength Conditioning Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Ross Childs. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Apologize for no podcast from last week. Uh, I had to go to my son's uh, kindergarten moving on ceremony. So uh, I was fortunate enough to to go spend that time with him, but glad to be back. Uh, Adam and I are going to hopefully over the next couple of weeks uh, really have some interesting stuff for you guys. Um, we've kind of been lacking a little bit. Life has just been a little bit busy as far as our organization. So fortunately, we've been able to still put together some good content for you, but you know, we'll try to organize it a little better uh, moving forward. Uh, so Adam, what's, what's new in your life? Not a whole lot. I got one week left as of when this is, or about a week and a half left at Get Fit before I branch out on my own for Great Method Training moving forward. So that's um, exciting and scary all at once. So, well, if it doesn't scare you, you're not you're not dreaming big enough. Um, for those of, of you who are listening, uh, and I'm sure they're going to ask that question. You know what what is really going to be your your niche for for Gray Method? So, my niche is probably is most likely going to be uh, working with a lot of the similar clientele that I am now, just in a remote setting. So. You know, people that are either trying to get out of pain, lose weight, kind of your very gen general population type stuff. People that are just looking to uh, increase their activity. Uh, I'm more than I'd love to work with people that are looking more performance based, but um, I think much more of my market is going to be like if you're looking to, you know, you want to be able to move better, you want to be stronger to do your, you know everyday type recreational stuff whether that just means gardening and you know being able to pick up heavy boxes around the house or whether that means you know getting out to play you know five rounds golf a week must sure that must be a hell of a week but so in in your opinion why might someone go the route of a remote personal trainer compared to in person I think that what's nice about remote personal training is that you get more contact with the coach, believe it or not. So a lot of times, I mean, it is more cost effective as well. A personal training, a personal trainer who knows what they're doing, who's been in the you know the field for as long as I have and has been through, can run anywhere from you know. 50, 80, 100 dollars, and that's around here. I mean, when you get closer to cities with a lot of money, you're talking two, three, four hundred dollars an hour. Um, whereas, because it's not, you know, as much of my time, it's not quite as expensive. But so there's that piece to it for those compared to those people that are looking for a one on one personal training. But there also is like, I'm able to keep in contact with people consistently throughout the week. Yeah. And it, can be set to their schedule too, right? If you're going to a gym and you're working with a personal trainer, well, you have to find a time that fits their schedule. Whereas I can, you know, talk with you, we go through an assessment, we figure out what the training is going to look like for you. And then the next step is, okay, let's say that you only have time to exercise or your, you know, your best days to exercise are Monday, Tuesday, you know, Friday, Sunday, I don't know, just some random spattering of dates. Well, I can set the train to that. Let's say Monday things come up, you're, you know, you just, the kids are being crazy and you can't get your training in. Okay, so then I can move that Monday training to Thursday or one of the days, whereas if you have to miss a trip personal training session, there's not always a guarantee that you can actually get another day. So that's what's, what's nice about doing it that way. Excellent. Now, 
Are you looking for any specific um, experience as far as workout is concerned? Not necessarily. Um, I am pretty well versed at this point working with people with very little um, training experience and working our way my way up. You know, I've also have people that have years of experience. Obviously, like, is it, you know, do I enjoy working with people that I can just kind of get into the main, you know, meat of it a little bit more? Yeah, but I also like working with people that are just starting their journey and, like, you know, are looking for the best way to move their body in a way that's going to help them moving forward. Yeah, and I mean, from from a standpoint of, of me being on the outside and listening, you know, really with remote training, you know, it's still tailored to you a hundred percent, you know, so really you get all the benefits of the in-person training without the actual person right there, basically being a cheerleader for you. You right. just have more of that one-on-one interaction virtually. Right. Um, so, so if you guys are looking for any online programming from Adam, check him out. Great method. Um, you know, it's still going to be the same great product as when he's in person. Now for today's uh, episode, you know, Adam and I have been going back on back and forth on this for about a week or two now, and we want to start to talk about more physical therapy specific diagnoses or medical diagnoses that people may be dealing with when they're at the gym. Um, part of the reason for this is you have pretty much, I would say, everyone that comes to see me with an upper extremity condition. Oh, when I sleep, my hands go numb. Well, when I sleep, my hands go numb. Mm -hmm. So numbness and tingling is a symptom that we always ask everyone. So how often would you say that people come up to you in the gym and say, I've been having this hand numbness, tingling, things along those lines? I'd say it's, it's, you know, rare in the grand scheme of things, but it it certainly, it happens. You know, maybe... Maybe once some you know once or twice a month. If mm-hmm. I had to put a number on it, it yeah. probably averages about to something like that. Which is still pretty significant in the scheme right. of things. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes people will come in, and again, I have to do a lot of screening questions. I ask clarifying questions, uh, and people will say, "Well, I'll go. Do you have numbness and tingling? Yes. Okay. Where? Okay. When? And then usually they'll say at night. And I'll say, "Are you a side sleeper? Yes. And then that takes me down the path. So a lot of people are, are kind of under the illusion that when they hear about thoracic outlet syndrome or brachial neuralgia or something along those lines, which are medical diagnoses, they assume they have it. Most of us, if we lay on our side, we're going to compress the nerves. Mm-hmm. It's going to cause numbness and tingling in our entire hand. That's, 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 not, that's not a thoracic outlet syndrome because there's some structural problem. Um, if you lay in bed at night and read a book or text or whatever, with your arms bent, you probably get some numbness and tingling in your, your last two fingers, which is very, very common. These are just uh, stretched nerves or compressed nerves that the symptoms go away once you remove that stress. Now, we have had some questions about thoracic outlet syndrome, and we know some members that, that do have it, and, and in physical therapy, I do see it probably a lot more often than, than say, you would. Um, but it's kind of just clearing the air on it, on what it is, you know, what we're looking for, um, some of the relevant anatomy that's associated with it. And then if someone does have it, what can you do about it? And then can you still have a normal training career uh, or just active lifestyle with it? Um, what's your experience with actual thoracic outlet syndrome? Very little. Um you know, we've talked about it a little bit too. The part of the reason that I wanted to do this a little bit of a, a little bit selfishly on my part, um, because it's not something 
legit thoracic outlet is not something that I've had to deal with much over the course of my eight-year career. Um, you know, if I was at a place that dealt more with, you know, a lot of... I, I tend to see the places that the... The CSPs and the stuff where they have like a lot of overhead athletes mm-hmm. that they're working with tend to deal with it a lot more. So it's a lot more calm, or at least in my perception, they seem to deal with it a lot more. Uh, at least than that, I that's, do. That's not just a perception. That that's not okay. a fact. There are okay. different types that there are certain risk factors that are associated with it. So um, overhead re- repetitive stress is usually associated with it. Right. So, so I very I that's not something that is a huge portion of the the population that I work with. So it. I'm fully willing to admit it it is a little bit of a blind spot on my... It's just why I wanted to do this and talk about it a little bit more because, you know, it's one of those things where if it's not something you ever run into, it's not something that I'm often... You know, my continuing education, the things that I'm reading and stuff are more in the realm of, like, what I'm dealing with on a daily basis. Thoracic outlet isn't something that I've... Sure. ...dealt with much up until recently. Yeah, and and one... One athlete comes to mind that you'll probably remember, Markel Fultz, mm-hmm. um, the point guard that played for the Sixers and then went down to the Orlando Magic. Well, they thought he had bilateral shoulder impingement. You don't get bilateral anything unless there's a bigger problem going on. Mm-hmm. And he had actually uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, uh, a very specific type, that, which we'll talk about. Um, and it, they had to rule out everything else in order to get to that diagnosis. They just didn't expect it because he was a young, healthy individual. He was a, a superstar, collegiate athlete, made it to the NBA, number one pick. And uh, the guy could barely shoot a free throw without yeah. an air ball. And then come to find out, he had thoracic outlet. And um, I think he had conservative treatment. I don't think he had surgery for it. Um, came back, actually did very well for the Orlando Magic before he tore his ACL. So he actually had a pretty pretty decent career coming back from that, and it shouldn't be a problem. Now, to get into thoracic outlet syndrome, so really what we're looking at is really a group of disorders that really is involved with compression of the nerve bundles and the vascular structures, the blood supply, that come out of your neck, are in your neck to shoulder blade region, and can go down the arm. And specifically what we're looking at are three spaces, which is called the scalene triangle, and that's just an area where the nerves come out in between the scalenes in your neck. The costoclavicular space, so that's the space between your first rib and your collarbone. And then the subcoracoid space, which is closer to the shoulder, um, a little more to the outside, kind of where someone would get shoulder impingement. Now some of the structures that we have to worry about are the subclavian artery vein, and the brachial plexus. So those are really the big three, and that's how we go about actually diagnosing them. And there's also the axillary vein and artery as well. But there's three types that generally will fall into, and it's gonna be neurogenic, uh, TOS, uh, arterial, um, TOS, and then venous. So, and each of them has their own distinct characteristics that we can use for diagnosing. Now I'll say from a physical therapy standpoint, all of them can be treated conservatively, I just typically find that neurogenic responds the best to conservative measures, and we'll we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. Now, TOS is not the first diagnosis that people will come to. It's very very rare that someone says, oh, this sounds like TOS. Usually, if something's radiating down the arm, if you have weakness down your arm, paresthesia, things along those lines, we're suspecting it's coming from the cervical spine. Mm -hmm. 
generally we have to rule out the cervical spine first we have to rule out a peripheral nerve entrapment and then we have to try to determine okay is it the nerve that's trapped in between the neck and the shoulder is it the the veins or is it the arteries at that point so and there's some different testing that you can do um, to try to tease that out or at least that's typically what i get to do uh, in the clinic now there are some risk factors that are associated with it and it really is going to depend on the type of uh, tos that you do have so the first type that we'll talk about is actually the neurovascular so uh, or the neuro neurogenic now, neurogenic can be divided into what's called true neurogenic or disputed, which is kind of kind of weird. It's like, why would you dispute it? If they have symptoms, they have it. Um, but true neurogenic uh, TOS is usually presents in, in a one-sided condition. Um, generally, we're gonna see this more in females compared to males. And typically that's gonna be, it, it's really not as common as, as we would like to think. Now, what people think of as disputed TOS, sometimes that can be bilateral symptoms. This would be more along the lines of what people get when they're actually sleeping. And that's more 95% of the population. Um, but ideally what should happen is once you remove the compression, once you wake up or roll off that side, mm -hmm. really the, the symptoms should go away. Um, you're generally not gonna see any other symptoms with the disputed, but with a true neurogenic TOS, you can have face pain, uh, you may also have visual and hearing disturbances, and you may also have sleep disturbances. So also if, if people are coming in with bilateral numbness and tingling, that's not coming from the cervical spine, and they don't have all that other stuff, um, chances are it is that disputed. So I'd say that I, I do see that one quite often compared to the true. Now that also brings us to the venous uh, TOS. So venous TOS is, this is where you would see the repeated uh, upper extremity motion, so it's it's actually seen in more males than, than females, and typically it's going to be seen in someone's uh, dominant arm. So this goes back to the overhead athlete that mm -hmm. you would see. Now, does that mean that a female playing volleyball can't get it? No, it's probably going to put them at an increased risk as well, just because you do have those repeated motions. Same thing with a with a swimmer. Um, can't promise I've seen too many of them. Um, I've seen arterial, which is the other kind that we've talked about, which that generally occurs in females. So that's kind of the differentiation between those two. What they've really found with the arterial TOS um, is that typically it will happen with the presence uh, in younger adults, but also the presence of a cervical rib. Our ribs start at thoracic vertebrae one, so okay. T1. Yep. Um, sometimes you can have a, a tiny little rib sticking off of C7, and that's where a lot of the neurovascular bundles really come out of the cervical spine, converge together in the brachial plexus, and then travel down the arm. And now if you have an extra piece of bone sticking there, you do run the risk of compression, occlusion, um, whatever it may be. So um, what we'll typically see with the, the arterial TOS is that most people will have a weakening of their uh, brachial pulse or the radial pulse when they're moving their arm around. So they may stretch it out to the side, reach it overhead. So you'll typically see that diminish over time. <clears throat> now, some of these tests that we typically will use, if I just took your radial pulse, pressed in on it and brought your arm behind you, mm -hmm. would, would you think your pulse is gonna get stronger or weaker? So I, I would think I would think stronger. 
on the opposite side, but if I occlude it and then strike Oh, if the you arm occlude out, it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I missed that part. Uh, right. Weaker. Weaker. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so they're not the best tests, but it really is one of the best indicators that we have. So I will still, will still use these tests. So um, now one of the biggest distinguishing factors with uh, the vascular TOS, which those are the two arterial and venous, is that people can have, again, uh, weakness, but also fatigue, almost like they feel like they can't pick up their arm, which is not generally the case with neurogenic unless it's progressive. So that usually means that now we have some type of a peripheral nerve entrapment. Now I can think of, of people offhand that again, bilaterally do have some type of vascular TOS. Um, same symptoms, their arms just feel tired, fatigued. They may also get this bluish color in their fingertips just because there's, there's a lack of blood flow to the area. Um, whereas you typically won't see those same color changes with neurogenic. So now as we go through and we look at all the different abnormalities that we could see, or, or let's talk impairments, I should say, um, what do you think are contributing factors when we're discussing posture that could compress the neurovascular structures that I described? I would think of like, so shoulder elevation. Yep. And you know that forward rounding posture the what whatever you want to call it the yeah, pec shortening yeah, whatever pseudo you, upper cross yeah whatever. yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so type, tight yeah. upper traps tight pecs things yeah. are rolling you forward increased kyphosis now what ends up happening with that tight upper trap is it creates that shoulder elevation which also creates elevation at the scalene so yeah. the scalene attaches from the side of the neck to the first rib so if we have elevation we're gonna have a lifting up or what we call uh, elevated first rib syndrome. And if that even moves three millimeters higher, that can compress those structures. So it's really important to really address a lot of the, the impairments that we do typically see, but they've found that to actually be uh, an indicator for TOS as well, assuming that it's not addressed at that point. Now, people don't need to have injuries in order to have TOS. So some people do, direct trauma to the area, um, but more so non-traumatic. They may have those congenital deformities or it could just be that repetitive stress. So people usually say, do you have any type of, of injuries? The only time I've seen this present is in a motor vehicle accident. Person got shoved forward, broke their clavicle mm -hmm. or collarbone and the, the nerve structures are right underneath. So that's why it's important with any fracture, you always have a, a neurovascular screen just to make sure that those symptoms aren't gonna be problematic later down the line. Now you can also have neck problems associated with the thoracic outlet. So a lot, oftentimes I'll find that you can have, um, especially if there's a cervical rib, there may, may be some discogenic pain that people aren't even aware of. Um, so you have to really make sure that you do a lot of neck screening. But for a lot of these people, you know, you just come in and their upper traps are just, they're trying to wear their shoulders as earmuffs just because it, it just hurts. Yeah. You know, that they're trying to actually take weight off of the area. Letting the arms actually hang straight down actually is worse for them because now it's gonna traction those same structures. So pretty pretty important that we, we try to correct that. Now I'd say most of the time, and stop me if I'm going, going too fast or if you have any clarifying questions. Um, typically when we're dealing with neurogenic, so just the nerves are, are being problematic, the easiest thing that we can do to assess someone is really just have them stretch. 
Stretching won't necessarily fix the arterial and the venous right away, but it should have changes with the neurogenic, which is kind of the cool part. So you can see quick changes with that. And then the hard part is when you're trying to distinguish between arterial versus venous, then you actually need to have advanced testing done on that. So um, that's why I say that typically neurogenic is easier to treat with conservative physical therapy only because you need to go through advanced testing in order that for them to actually rule in or rule out arterial versus venous. Neurogenic is, is pretty straightforward at that point. Um, so I, I, I can't promise, can't promise I've seen a true venous or arterial TOS that was not diagnosed first. Yeah. Usually these people are having significant problems. They have lots of weakness. Typically they're going through the medical system first before they get sent to me. Whereas neurogenic, usually people will come see me and then if it's progressive, then I have to send them out at that point. So then uh, let me, and I don't know if this is completely changing. I remember when I was at a, uh, I think it was, um, Again, I talked about CSP a little bit already because that's where I've always heard about it more so. But it might have been Miguel when he was working there. I don't know if you – Miguel, I I don't remember how to pronounce his last name. But whatever the case, he was talking about – they were talking about shoulder impairments. And he didn't go into the reasoning behind it, which is why I'm curious if this – so it was some sort of a – it was like a – it was like a test to see where their – their strength was like the test. It was was overall about shoulder mobility, but he specifically mentioned this one test where like – You'd be standing up, or the person you'd be testing would be standing up. You'd have them, they'd grab your hand, or like two fingers, squeeze down by the side, up at shoulder height, and up overhead. And it was to see if overhead there was less of a, there was a disparity in the grip strength. Mm-hmm. Is something like that a test that you'd be looking at for sports more neurologically based? He didn't say what that test was for. It was just part of the overall yeah, I would certainly say because you get more occlusion once you get overhead. So whether that's occlusion of the nerves or whether it's arterial or venous, you know, at that point, if it's causing numbness and tingling, it would lead me more towards neurogenic TOS compared to the other two. But extreme weakness would lead mm-hmm. me to then believe, okay, this is probably more of the vascular type compared to neurogenic at that point. Um, very similar to provocation tests that we typically use. Um, there's three of them that we typically will use, and one of them is called the elevated arm stress test, which is very similar to what you were just talking about. And really what we're looking for is a reduction in strength, pain, or pulselessness. So strength is just another one that kind of you were talking about. Um, we'll also use what's called the upper limb tension test, so bringing the arm out to the side and just tip back. If it's neurogenic or what they would call altered uh, neurodynamics, Typically, they would have symptoms down into all of their hands versus just the median nerve, okay. which is going to be just the first three fingers. Um, ulnar nerve, or the uh, funny bone nerve, would be the pinky and the, and the ring finger. And then they'll also do what's called an Adson's maneuver, where that's very similar to what I described, where we're going to end up having um, taking the radial pulse and then stretching the arm behind us just okay. to see if there are changes. So, um, again... The reliability of the test, the um, validity of the test is not great, but it's the best thing that we have. So if someone comes in, says, my arms feel fatigued, my grip strength is poor, it happens when my arm's overhead, and then we start to look at, okay, this is a young male, 
you know, overhead athlete, you know, all of a sudden they have uh, pulselessness or decreased um, pulses when I put their arm into this provocative testing. You know, you may have, you know, X, Y, or Z, you know, let's get you sent out and, and get some testing done to confirm this. Because the last thing that you want to do is really start getting in there with that lower cervical spine, upper thoracic, and you just don't know what's going on. Right. You, you, the last thing you want to do is get in, mobilize, manip, whatever it is, um, when you don't have those definitive answers. You know, especially anytime that you're dealing with nerve stuff, if there's no clear-cut answer, you know, or arterial for that matter, or vascular for that matter, all three. You know, unless it's everything's laid out perfectly for you, advanced testing is, is really the best way to go. You know, you never want to assume these things, um, especially with, and the biggest mistake I've seen in the past with um, treating TOS, and I, I probably made this early on in my career, is just giving stretches not knowing which one it is. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Now, a lot of this is a compression disorder. Right. But now, what do you think is going to happen? Let's say there's, they have natural compression anteriorly, so right in their pec region, and then I have them stretch their pec. What's going to happen to the blood flow? I would imagine it would continue to... I'm not sure. My first thought would be that it would continue to keep the compression because you're still stretching the fibers back against that compressed area. Exactly. Okay, so now yeah. that tight tissue is now compressing the structures even more. Okay, yeah. So it really doesn't make sense to do that. So I, probably early on, I, I was probably doing that. So, you know, it, it, oftentimes people learn about brachial neuralgia. They learn about cervical brachial syndrome. You know, usually these are all referring to just the, the normal nerve stuff that we would typically see, but um, now that there's a lot more awareness about venous and, and uh, arterial, you know, we really got to be specific with what we're looking for, what we're treating, um, conservative measures versus surgical at that point. Now, typically when someone has um, neurogenic, assuming there's no cervical rib, which we typically wouldn't see, People typically can have very good results with conservative PT. You know, usually what we do is we find the impairments. Maybe there's something along what we would call the neural compartments that we have to increase the space. Maybe we have to open up the foramen, um, which is the whole way the nerve comes out. Maybe we loosen up the scalenes, the upper trap, whatever it may be. Maybe we give them cervical mobility drills. Um, so that's usually pretty, pretty conservative. Um, I usually don't get in and start manipulating the cervical spine, maybe the, the thoracic. Um, but when we start dealing with arterial, when we start dealing with venous, if if they don't really improve in four to six weeks, then usually surgery is going to be indicated for those for those individuals. So, and this is assuming that there's no other comorbidities associated with it. There's no underlying genetic factors that we have to worry about. Nothing hereditary or or anything along along those lines. Now, if someone is dealing with a cervical rib that they figure out is causing the problem, they'll actually have to go in and, and resect the rib. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if they think it's causing the issue. I know a couple individuals that have cervical ribs and it's not really causing any issues other than hypomobility or lack of motion. So um, really no issues with that. I know others that have to go in and get it resected and usually they do well. They've increased the space in the area and, and, and usually they do, they do quite well. 
Even after surgery, though, it's important for them to maintain their range of motion, make sure their shoulder range of motion is, is uh, back to normal. Um, posture is also a huge one. So if we see someone who's rounded forward all day long, we got to get them out of that position. That just creates prolonged compression. So, you know, and that, that's more along the lines of probably what you would see after the fact. So mm -hmm. the person had surgery. They went to PT, they no longer have symptoms, but that bad habit is still there. Well, the likelihood of something coming back is increased once we have it. It's, it's once we have something, we are four times more likely to develop it again and on the other side. So then breaking that habit, which is something we've talked about before, is super important for these individuals, whether that's cervical mobility, thoracic mobility, um, glenohumeral mobility or stability, whichever one that, that they may need at that point. So can I ask you, so uh, I think this is along the same lines, but I'm, I may have to stumble through this question a little bit because I know what I want to ask up here, but I'm mm. not sure how it's going to come out when it actually gets to my mouth. Yeah. So you talked earlier about how traction can be uncomfortable, right? So the arm getting essentially down away from the body. So if somebody, so I'm, I'm thinking of one person individually that you and I have both seen. Um, I know that this person tries very, very hard to keep their shoulder, like their their emphasis is shoulders down out of the ears, mm. but almost is so much that you see all the tension throughout the structures in their neck and their shoulders because they're trying so hard to pull the shoulders down, like shoulder, like shoulder caps down away from the ears. Yeah. So is that something that might create that sort of tightness or that tension because they're trying so hard to do the almost the opposite? Um, I don't know if that question comes out correctly or not, but. Potentially. Okay. Potentially. And yes, the, the question makes sense. So the, the problem is, is when we do have that increased elevation, everything's going to get compressed. The only problem is traction also creates that same compression. Gotcha. So there's, there's got to be a fine medium. Yeah. If we force shoulder depression and retraction too much, we have to think that we're just pulling everything, which creates that same occlusion that we talked Similar about before. Similar to stretching. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it needs to be kind of a, a comfortable and controlled position. Um, but I don't think that it should necessarily take the top priority. You yeah, know, I yeah. understand why, but, you know, again, too much of a, of a good thing can, can also turn bad. So we have to just be mindful of that. So that kind of leads me into the next. So in, when you're talking about the scaling, so can the scaling tone, whether that be from, you know, clenching their jaw or jutting their chin or, you know, breathing with their scalings rather than not that I necessarily want to get into breathing mechanics and any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But like, so can that also create that same compression because that, oh, yeah. that scaling is so absolutely. Tight? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have to take into account positions that the person's in all day long. You know, what's their hand dominance? You know, what's their, their previous neck injury history? Because that could also be causing them to side bend and rotate one way. Um, you know, how long have they had TOS? Because then they could be compensating for that. So there's a multitude of things that we that we do have to take into account. But I'd say the scalenes are, are one of the biggest culprits for all neck conditions. Um, yeah. A lot of neurogenic conditions that are not even associated with TOS. Um, the problem is there's not great stretches that you can do for them, and you don't want to just go in willy-nil and start digging into your own scalenes. You have yeah. to know what you're doing at that point. Um, so usually what I'll just tell people is just really gently 
stretch the upper traps, just try to make sure that we can get some separation between the ear and the shoulder so that we're not creating that compression the whole time. Um, you know, but most, most people, again, do well in, in four to six weeks. They should be making those larger changes, you know, and, and I'd say probably 50% and maybe even more than that, 60% of individuals probably can be treated with conservative management, but it takes time. Again, it's really these extreme cases that we would need surgical management. And those are the ones that would, again, they would either fail physical therapy for the first four to six weeks or their arm symptoms would be so bad they would have to do advanced testing mm -hmm. anyways. So now for the individuals that do require surgery, again, a lot of that just has to do with going in and, and resecting whatever it is that they think is causing the occlusion. So that could be the rib, it could be scar tissue from an injury. Um, ligaments, not really, there's no major ligament into the area, so I wouldn't be too worried about that. Uh, I have had people have um, what's called an infraclavicular uh, approach where they go underneath the, the okay. collarbone and kind of resect it that way, um, just to minimize scar tissue up there. So. You know, there, there's a multitude of approaches that they can use. Uh, I know around here they typically try to put as minimal scarring to the area just because it can cause scar tissue and can lead to prolonged conditions. Now, people, I won't say people, people usually ask about that other type of TOS, what can we do about it? So if someone comes in with true thoracic outlet syndrome, really the biggest thing that you and I can teach them is posture. Mm -hmm. We already do that anyways. So that's, that's you know, huge. And people don't realize how important posture actually is until they, they start to lose it. You know, posture really sets us up biomechanically because it puts or, or reduces the greatest amount of stress on our spine. You know, if we think of our, our body in terms of building blocks, like when you're a kid, you stack building blocks directly on top of itself, you can build forever. Mm -hmm. You know, you start letting those building blocks teeter too much it eventually will fall or you have to bring the building block so far back to the other side and then the rest of the, the system is thrown off. Muscles work the same way. You have to have an even ratio front to back, side to side, diagonals. Um, but really when you're looking at posture, you're just removing the greatest amount of stress to all of the physical structures. And people don't recognize that. Plus you're also developing a good habit. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you were to ask, or, or let me ask you this, and, and hopefully this question is apparent once I ask it. If you do a, a workout program that's only pushing exercises compared to pulling, do you think you're going to have good posture or not so good posture? Poor posture or not so good posture. Yeah. Yeah, because you're only using those <laughs> muscles that already pull us forward. Yep. So that's really the positions that we all stay in all day long. So really it's the ability to now teach the muscles that we don't use as much to now offset that. And they're much smaller in, in nature, you know, especially when we're talking about the shoulder blade muscles or any of the muscles that we do any rowing variations with. Smaller and not as strong compared to say the pecs. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's very important for people to now do just as much back work, if not more, just, just to offset that. Uh, I usually like making sure that people have normal cervical range of motion. So usually I'll teach them chin tucks. So anyone that's come in for upper extremity, cervical headaches, whatever it is, I always teach them a chin tuck. 
And for those of you listening, really you're just trying to make a double chin. So you're not going down, you're just making a double chin. Um, if you guys are still wondering what I mean by a chin tuck, you can either Google it, something will pop up. Um, you could also go to my YouTube page, so Fit for Life PTNH, um, and scroll down to the videos, you'll see a chin tuck and I explain why you can use it. But that's just a very good exercise for anyone to do, not even just TOS at that point. Now I will give some stretching, I think that's important, but if the stretching is causing the symptoms, it's not gonna be worth it at that point. So if you were to just give someone, let's say three exercises to do based off of what we just talked about posture-wise, what are some easy exercises that you can give? Maybe one for you know, stretching the upper traps, one for, and maybe two back. I won't even talk about pecs because I don't want them to stretch that right now. Uh, Stretch-wise or just like exercise-wise? Because I was thinking like a horizontal row variation yeah. to help strengthen the back. But I don't know if that's what you meant. Yeah. Um, so a horizontal, some sort of horizontal row. So arms in front of you, pulling the shoulders and everything back. Um, for the traps, uh, so either working it with a lacrosse ball or something like that against the wall or in terms of a stretch... Um, I've really liked the the stretch that you had told me about. I mean, going back months ago now. So like elbows up on something to put mm-hmm. this put the traps on slack, and then leaning your head away. Um, and then what was the third? So you wanted two for the traps in the back, and then yeah. And then I was gonna say avoid avoid pack. So if you can just give oh, another yeah, another yeah, yeah. back exercise um, that you like. So an overhead row to or a, a, a vertical pull. So yeah. pulling down from up overhead versus in front, um, anything along those lines. Anything that makes the, the shoulders have to mechanically come back versus being forced or stretched back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are very simple posture exercises that anyone can do regardless of the condition that you have, but specifically for TOS. Um, these exercises are typically given if anyone has uh, conservative um, treatments, so more along the lines of, of physical therapy. And people do quite well with that, and usually massage they tend to do quite well. So being that you know massage is not part of your job, let's say someone has tightness in the pecs. What's uh, an example of self-massage that they can do for their pecs? So like a lacrosse ball, baseball, whatever, something with some density against the wall at the... So right where the pec runs up into the shoulder. So staying away from the collarbone area, moving more outside. Yeah. Or laterally, I guess. Yeah. So typically I'll do that. uh, And then what I'll also have them do is foam roll between the shoulder blades and kind Mm -hmm. of combine that with thoracic extension or or leaning backwards so it just can improve their their upper thoracic mobility, which again is typically tight in, in most individuals. Now, we also have to be mindful of of people that do a lot of overhead work. And we talked about repeated motions, um, swimmers, you know, baseball players, things along those lines. But we also have to think about maybe the uh, construction workers, the the electricians, Mm -hmm. the ones that are constantly doing overhead work. They're more likely to get TOS as well. So we also have to teach them basically how to put their extremities back in those positions with decreased neurogenic symptoms or whatever it may be. And that's assuming we've ruled out any type of congenital abnormality, structural abnormality, because that's nothing that we're going to be able to deal with. Um, that's something that needs to be taken care of more medically. So, But just helping them, even if they have surgery, 
you know, making sure they don't have scar tissue formation, making sure that they get full range motion back, making sure they don't have prolonged symptoms. Those things are all super important, but it's like everything, early detection is key. So if someone comes to you and says, every time I lift my arm up to 90 degrees or above, you know, I'm feeling kind of this cold sensation in my hand, I'm getting numbness and tingling, or just having a lack of sensation, so-called anesthesia, um, weakness, fatigue, I can't hold my arm up, especially if it's both sides. Doesn't hurt to say, hey, you might as well go get checked out. Yep. Doesn't doesn't hurt. Yeah. You know, I I'd rather know than not know. Yeah, I don't tend to I don't tend to screw around with neurological stuff. Or or like stuff that, that seems to be neurological in nature. Well, especially in a case like that. Let's say someone has compression of the spinal cord. Let's say they were in a motor vehicle accident a couple weeks ago, they, they refused medical care, they didn't get imaging, they potentially have a cervical fracture. Um, you know, and it's like, all right, well, it doesn't seem like it's anything serious. Let's go ahead and do some bear crawls. And now let's say their arm, as they come up in 90, they're all of a sudden losing feeling. Their arm gives out on them. They have a cervical fracture, but we didn't know that. And they yep. end up falling and hitting their head. Yep. It's like, oh boy, that that's bad. Man, that, add a concussion on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it potentially makes the, the fracture even worse. Well, right. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Potentially leads to spinal cord compression. Um, and all that could have been could have been avoided if we just you know played it safe. You know, and that that's really the biggest thing is make sure we rule out the bad stuff. Um, and that's really the the important part is all right. What's the the list that we can run through right now? Kind of our own algorithm to say all right, this person's safe. This person's not safe. Let's go ahead and, and refer them out. Now, if anyone does have TOS, again, that should be managed medically. You know, and, and ideally you want to make sure that you have, um, you consult with the physician, you consult with the surgeon, and just to make sure that you know what your precautions need to be. Uh, ideally, it's not something that you should necessarily have to manage for the rest of your life unless there are other factors associated with it. But usually, people aren't, they live pretty pretty normal lives once they figure it out and it can be corrected. So that's, that's really the, the important thing to remember. Now, is there anything about TOS that you're specifically wondering about that I haven't touched upon? I knew I just threw a lot out there. No, that's fine. No, that was and it was it was it was good to I was able to follow it and it makes a whole ton of sense, a whole ton more sense. My question, I guess, then moving, and I guess it's it's not really anything that hasn't been covered, but I think it's the next step in kind of the way we've been building this so far. So then. We're talking post thoracic outlet, whether they've had surgical intervention or you know they've gone through the process of managing it conservatively, whatever yeah. that may be. Then what are some? So like the the specific client that I've that you know we've talked about that we've both met with, um, you know, will ask me, okay, I have tightness or sore, not even soreness, but it's usually like tightness or you know after. X exercise, you know, it's usually something like side planks or um, more recently it was bear crawls, and so like how to know whether it's something to be concerned about or whether it's something where we're just going back to increasing strength and stability in that region, you know, versus something that like okay that was too much, we need to walk. I, I don't really know what the 
in my head, I would think, okay, you've had you've had it treated. There's been surgical intervention, that kind of stuff. So now, as long as you're not having those those neurological symptoms, mm-hmm. I would think that you should still be in a good spot, and that that tightness would be semi normal. But I don't know. Yeah. So typically, so a lot of people, even without true TOS, are still going to get numbness and tingling with bear crawls, and that's just due to the compression on the area. So usually when we have nerve symptoms, if they remove their arm from the ground and the symptoms go away, usually it's nothing to worry about. It's that prolonged symptom that we have to worry about. Yeah. Now, if we're dealing with someone post-surgically, they got the clearance to start working out, tightness alone is nothing to be concerned with. Tightness associated with numbness and tingling, associated with um, cyanosis or that blue color in the fingers, cold sensation in the hand when you see a stacking of risk factors okay. then, then you have to be worried about it so none of the criteria that we have for diagnosing it is perfect on its own so what we need is more of a cluster of, of test items to, to say okay based off of this the probability of something bad is going on you know the I, x y and z tells us that but not not the case when it's just tightness you know where's the tightness coming from is this your symptom? Have you felt this before? So there, there's a laundry list of questions that you can kind of go through that kind of teases it out. But tightness itself, um, soreness, you know, I always tell people pay attention to how it feels during, immediately following, and then, then the next day. You know, if they say, when I do this, my arm falls asleep. All right, that's probably not good. Okay. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's not good at all. I wouldn't want that. Now, if they said, you know, when I raise this up and my elbow's slightly bent, the ring finger goes numb. All right, well, can you straighten the elbow a little bit? What does that do? So try to change the symptoms a little bit. Um, overhead stuff I know is kind of controversial for people with TOS. It's based on their symptoms. You know, again, hopefully they've gotten clearance from their medical doctor about what they can and can't do. Um, but even then, when we start to think about, I know some people that are told don't reach overhead basically against resistance ever again i just i understand why they say that but it's probably not the most practical thing i mean even if you reach into an overhead cabinet and grab a can of chef boyardee that's still reaching overhead against resistance right so um do i want to see them overhead pressing 200 pounds probably not probably not but you know the goal is to just see how their symptoms are during before or uh, after, and then hopefully the next day to see. But a lot of it is we don't know how we're going to respond until we do something. So I, I, again, this is very easy for me to say because I don't have TOS. I haven't been diagnosed with it. I haven't had to go through treatments for it. I would want to know what my body is capable of doing. Yeah. However, I've never gone through an event, you know, and, and there are people that have described events to me that led to their TOS diagnosis. And um, if it followed that trajectory, I would probably be fearful at times as well. And I'd be hypervigilant with trying to discern all of my symptoms that I'm having. So, you know, people have to be their own best advocate. Uh, Personally, I think I would want to be 
pseudo crazy about my diagnosis um, compared to being more lax and nonchalant about it. So, okay. So then my next kind of question leading off of that. So just so I'm making sure I understand this correctly. So the neurogenic and venous are both more <clears throat> soft tissue slash postural related and arterial is more that possible um, extra rib up high, correct? So correct. I'm, that's correct. Okay. So and I don't, I don't think that this is this. I don't think it's as as simple as the way I'm going to ask this question, but I can't think of a better way to do it. So, neurogenic and venous are those more liable to have for you to have repeated symptoms over time if you if you're not consciously treating it and are you know like what to look out for versus is arterial because arterial is more usually surgically corrected, right? Mm-hmm. Are you less likely to have reoccurrence if you have arterial because I mean, assuming that you don't do the things that would cause neurogenic and venous. Yeah, so if, if it's determined that there's a true structural deformity that's causing it, removing that structural deformity in theory decreases your risk of having it come back. Okay. Compared to the other two, if there's no known structural deformity and it's just due to compression, whether it's muscle tightness or whatever it may be, if you don't remove that muscle tightness or if you put yourself into bad habits that will create muscle tightness, um, you do have an increased likelihood of it coming back in the future. If you, okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. So that makes, okay. Yeah. I mean, long, long answer just to come back to say, yes, you are correct. You're more likely to have the okay. first two come back compared to the structural deformity, assuming the structural deformity was, was removed. Right. Of course, was, was the actual reason behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, we're, we're trying to go through this process to teach you guys kind of what we know, um, or at least give people more insight. So if people are having numbness and tingling into their hands, you don't just freak out. Some people have never even heard of TOS, so hopefully they find this educational. Um, some people have it. Hopefully you, you can take a, a thing or two away from this. Um, but again, really, first-line therapy is kind of best for everyone, so keep it conservative. Um, early detection is really the best place to start. So you know, you may have to go through a multitude of tests to get there. So if you think you have it, again, I'd rather know than not know mm-hmm. and potentially have a worsening problem down the line. So um, if someone came in to the gym or if someone presented to you like a TOS, do you think you know enough at this point to either tell the person, go get checked out, or I think you're okay right now? I definitely think I'm, I definitely think I have, yeah, a much better handle on, you know, knowing what the progression would look like if it is more liable to be TOS for sure. Yeah. I just think a lot of people just get confused with kind of that numbness and tingling from sitting at the desk too long or from sleeping on it. Um, so hopefully it provides some, some clarification. No, it definitely does. No, this was extremely helpful for me. Uh, basically my own little ask Ross anything, but just on one topic. So that was super helpful. Hey, that's all right. You know, uh, we're open for discussion on pretty much anything. Yep. So, um, and for those, uh, you know, people listening who maybe aren't just clients, but are other strength conditioning coaches, other PTs, like, again, this is another, you know, helpful episode to learn some stuff and like how you and I can communicate working with you know, different groups of clients and all that kind of good stuff. So. Absolutely. Increases communication, so hopefully we can increase outcomes. Definitely. All right. All right, cool. So uh, I'm so so Ask Ross Anything is this week? Yes, yeah, this week. Okay. So 
You guys know the drill. All our information is in the description, including the link to Ross's uh, Fit for Life PT Facebook page, where he'll be having his Ask Ross Anything Wednesday. Jeez, uh, Thursday. Just said it. Coming up. up tomorrow. Uh, well, we're recording this on Wednesday. When you hear this, it'll be today, uh, 7.30 uh, Eastern Time uh, on Facebook Live. So go ahead and uh, click the link over if you're interested about that. You can ask Ross any questions about... You know, health and fitness can be about nutrition type stuff, whatever. He'll help you out in any way he can. So, otherwise, guys, until uh, next week, we will catch you soon. Have a good one.